I want you to hear one man's story. When I was quite young, I gave myself to the Lord. I then drifted away from church and away from Jesus, and I ended up walking in the wilderness for 25 years. For 25 years, I cursed Jesus and I fought against Christianity. I studied the Bible looking for wrongness in it and read as many anti-Christian writings as I could. I became an intellectually strong anti-Christian and could debate and win with committed Christians in many areas, especially on early church history. Guess you could say I was a bit like Saul, a zealot against the Christians. One day, in a fit of despair, after being separated from my wife of 19 years, I asked the creator, which was my concept at the time, how I could get her back. I heard an audible voice, which I instantly knew to be Jesus, say, believe in me. It was mind-blowing, to say the least. I can understand the confusion Saul must have felt when he was slammed up to the ground by the very person he was persecuting. It was the same with me. Was I saved during those 25 years of anti-Christian preaching? From my own heart, I can say a resounding no. If I had died and gone to heaven during that period, I would have screamed to be taken to hell. Right, so you understand that man's story. Uh, He made a commitment to Jesus when he was young, but then later on he completely went against God. What was his status? Was he saved or was he lost? So the question is, once I've given my life to Jesus, am I saved forever? Am I on a road that I cannot get off of, even if I want to? Or can I possibly lose my salvation? And we're asking that question today because we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. And as we've been doing this, taking the Bible at face value, what's clearly written in some of what we've read so far seems to indicate that if a Christian does not persevere in their faith, they can lose their salvation. And yet, a lot of churches and a lot of Christians will very strongly disagree with this. Um, They will say that provided somebody makes a decision to give their life to Jesus, that from that point on, no matter what happens after that, they are saved for all eternity. And in the case of the story that, that we just heard, these people would say, well, he was either never saved in the first place, um, no matter how much he believed that he was sincere in his commitment, or he was never lost. So no matter how much that he felt that he was rejecting God, he was still a Christian, even if he didn't want to be. Now, how do churches and Christians come to such diametrically opposed positions on this. And so today, because this is coming up through Revelation, I think it's important that we get this out in the air, out, of, out in the open, and, um, and talk about it. And so today we're talking about the very popular doctrine. Now, the word doctrine is a big church word, which just means teaching or belief. Okay, So it's a belief that's held by a church, a belief that's taught by a church, a doctrine. Um, 
And so we're looking at this very popular doctrine that many reformed and evangelical churches hold called once saved, always saved. Other names for it are perseverance of the saints or eternal security. And we're going to be turning to our Bibles to see whether that's what the Bible teaches or not. Now, the denominations that generally hold to the doctrine of once saved, always saved are the Presbyterians, uh, the Brethrens, some Baptists, although traditionally Baptists have not held to this, um, some independent churches, and I'm not sure where the modern Anglican church stands on it today, um, but certainly the Westminster Confession, which was originally written for the Church of England, holds to this belief. Um, and those denominations who don't hold to once saved, always saved, would be the Methodists, um, most Baptist churches, I don't think the Lutheran churches do. Um, most churches of Christ don't hold to it. And the Pentecostal churches, well, they're a bit of a mix. Some do, some don't. Now, the first thing I want to say to you is you won't find the phrase once saved, always saved in your Bible. Not that that's a reason for it not to be true, because you won't find the word Trinity in your Bible either. Um, but the Bible describes to you what the Trinity is without actually using the word. It, it gives us this picture of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being one God, but three persons. And so we coined the phrase Trinity to describe Trinity. So because the phrase doesn't appear in the Bible, that's no reason to, to discount it altogether. So where does this belief of once saved, always saved come from? Something I've noticed is that when major denominational churches disagree on something as important as salvation, usually what we'll find is that either a church's tradition or its theology colours how they read the Bible on a certain topic. And instead of taking the Bible at face value, um, when it seems that the Bible is teaching something that their theology or their tradition doesn't agree with, or they then look for another explanation to explain what the Bible is saying. Um, and they explain it in a way which the Bible would, would otherwise be actually quite clear about. And so in some of the passages that we've read over the last few weeks, those who believe in once saved, always saved, would say, well, of course, you know, that, that in these passages where it's indicating that it looks like somebody's going to lose their salvation, they would say, well, of course, Jesus isn't saying here that, we, that we're going to lose our salvation because you just can't. Um, and because your salvation is assured, that's a given. And they would then say, well, he, what he's doing is he's saying that you could lose some of your reward. So you mightn't get quite as big a crown or quite as big a house or, or whatever you think the heavenly reward is going to be. Um, and in fact, on the Christian radio only, only a week or so ago, I heard Chuck Missler say that exact thing, where to me, the Bible verse that he was teaching on seemed to be saying very clearly that if you don't persevere in your faith, then you can lose your salvation. But, but his theology would not fit that. Um, and so he then had to find the alternate view. And he said something along the lines of, this can't be talking about losing your salvation it's talking about losing your reward. And so they begin with their theological position and whenever they read the Bible, their theology 
Now, your theology is just what you believe about God. Um, and in this case, what you believe about salvation. Their theology is being shaped, no, sorry, is shaping how they interpret the Bible. Whereas I believe it should be the other way around. The Lord wants his, his word, the word of God, to be shaping our theology. Right? The Bible should be shaping what we believe about God, not what we believe about God to determine how we interpret the Bible. And so I'm going to be asking you today to put your theology aside. Um, and we're going to study the scriptures to see what the scriptures say about whether a Christian can lose their salvation or not. Uh, but before we do that, I think it's important that we know what we're pushing aside. Um, I believe it's important for us to have a quick look at what kind of a church background, uh, and what kind of a theology, what kind of an understanding of God shapes someone to believe in once saved, always saved. Um, and to do that, we're going to have to have a brief look at church history. Now, when I say we're going to have a brief look at church history, some of you will go, oh, man. And, the, and there might be a few of you, maybe one or two, who will go, oh, good, I find church history interesting. Uh, is anybody willing to confess that they're one of those one or two? Oh, good, there is two, three, good. Verity's interested, so I hope everybody else is. Yeah. One of the greatest periods of upheaval in the Christian church is what's known as the Reformation. In 1517, in response to grave injustice and corrupt church practices within the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther published his 95 Theses condemning the practices of the church and thus began the Reformation. The church was reformed, uh, but very reluctantly, um, and at that time, the church was so bound up with what's going on in the state, it's very hard to separate religious from political goings-ons. Anyway, the reformers were seen as heretics, and so they couldn't very well stay in the Roman Catholic Church, and so they formed a new church or new churches. And just as when we formed our little church here of Bush Disciples, we had to put together a statement of beliefs, this is what we believe, this is what we underteach, um, well, the reformers had to do that too. And as they nutted out what they believed and what the Bible taught, um, there's no getting around this, there were some extremely bitter debates um, amongst the reformers as they found that they disagreed with one another on certain topics. One of the very influential reformers was a bloke by the name of John Calvin. And I find a lot of John Calvin's writings to be very helpful in a fair bit of what he wrote about the Christian faith. But when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, which is what we believe about how we get saved... John Calvin concentrated his theology very strongly on the doctrine of predestination. Now, the doctrine of predestination is biblical. Um, God predestines us. God chooses to call us and to save us. But the way John Calvin saw it, he saw this in a very strong light. He, he, he saw that being saved, that means if God predestines you, 
means being saved is taken completely out of human hands. It's completely in God's hands, and therefore you don't have any free will. You might think that you're choosing God, but God is making you choose him. That's the the predestination thing. And after John Calvin's death, Calvinism was developed further um, by taking Calvin's thoughts even further. And in 1619, the five points of Calvinism were produced. Has anyone ever heard of the five points of Calvinism? No? Well, you're not very good Calvinists, are you? Okay, the five points of Calvinism um, were produced, and, and to remember them, they had the acronym of TULIP. And this is what Calvinism generally teaches. T stands for total depravity. Without God, human beings are so evil, they are so sinful, um, and our free will is so enslaved by sin that we could never choose to do anything good. Therefore, we could never choose to, we could never choose God. You stood for unconditional election. Since we can't choose for ourselves, well, God has chosen some people to become righteous. And um, now the flip side of that, of course, is what they call double predestination, which means if God chooses some to be saved, that means he chooses everybody else to go to hell. Okay? Which is quite a disturbing thought. Um, Then there's L, which stands for limited atonement. Calvinists believe that the effects of of Jesus' death is only for those that he came to save. So in effect, Jesus didn't really die for everyone. Jesus only died for those that God has chosen. I stands for irresistible grace. They believe that if God chooses you, there's no way you can refuse him. Um, it's just irresistible. You cannot resist him. It would be like Robin making a um, chocolate peppermint tort while I'm on a diet. I don't have a choice whether I'm going to eat that chocolate peppermint tort or not because it's absolutely irresistible. I just couldn't possibly choose not to eat it. And once I start, the whole thing will be gone before you know it. Um, And so God's grace is so irresistible you could not refuse it. There's no matter of free will here. And P stands for perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. Calvinists believe that since God has decided who will be saved and that we cannot resist God's grace, well, there's no way we can get out of it. So do you understand their logic? Now, this is all built one on top of another, all beginning with a very strong idea of what it means for God to predestine us. Uh, This predestination to the Calvinist removes any possibility of free will. And so I guess they see predestination as predetermination. Um, God makes the decision that you're going to be saved and your free will doesn't cut into it. Now, the other side of the debate were the Arminians. Um, And I actually believe the truth lies sort of somewhere in between. The Arminians talk about we have free will. um, And you might see up there John Wesley's position. I guess my position would be pretty closely aligned with John Wesley's. That's not exactly Arminian, but he's influenced by, by Arminianus. So what does it mean... 
that God would predestine us. Well, that means God prepares for our destiny ahead of time. But I think it's important for us to, to get a grip here on, on what is our, our destiny. Well, ultimately, our destiny is to be saved. But biblically, when, are, when is someone saved? Being saved, biblically, isn't a single point in time event. Being saved is a process. When you begin believing in Jesus is when you're saved, but you are still being saved. And we won't be completely saved until Jesus returns. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved... If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, the Apostle Paul is saying that being saved isn't a one-off event. Paul preached the gospel to them and they received it. And many evangelicals would say at that point, right, we've preached the gospel, you've received it, you're saved, you're good to go. And that's the end of the story. But that's not where Paul finished the story. He says, I preached it, you received it, you now stand in it, and he describes it as the thing in which you are being saved, if you continue to hold fast to it. Otherwise, the commitment that you made, well, it's really worthless, it's in vain. So biblically, being saved is a process which has to be worked through to completion when our Lord returns. Right. Now, the classic Bible passage that gets used to explain predestination and to propose the once saved, always saved understanding is Romans chapter 8. And I know you will have heard it. And I'm going to read it for you now, but then we're going to go a few pages on to Romans chapter 11 so that we can hold in balance everything that Paul is saying about the matter. Romans 8, reading from verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, um, and you see that, that what we're about to read is for those who love God. And in the Greek, this word love is a verb which is in the present tense. Right? So it is for those who are loving God. Not for those who once loved God, not for those who will love God. It's for those who are loving God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right, now, what are we predestined to? To be conformed to the image of his son. Um, is anybody here conformed to the image of Jesus yet? Mm. I am being conformed, but I'm not yet conformed. I will be conformed when Christ returns in his glory and, and, he, and he's completed his work on me. Okay. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? So that's the classic passage that's read out, to, to, that's used to, to describe predestination and also once saved, always saved, particularly that end bit there where it says nothing can take us out of God's hand. Now, but the picture that's given here is about a persecuted church. Did you notice that bit there where it talks about, for your sake we're being killed all the day long? We're like sheep to the slaughter for his sake? This picture is a picture of those who are standing so strong in their faith that they would even be killed rather than deny Jesus. And for these people, their salvation is secure. They can take everything away from you because you believe in Jesus. They can even take your life away. But that's not going to cut you off from God. You're going to, you stand strong in the faith. And even if they kill you, you go straight to be with Jesus. Now, did you notice that in that list of things that cannot take us away from God, there was something that was missing? ourselves what he's saying here is if you're standing in the faith if you are loving God nothing will separate you from the love of God but that doesn't mean that we can't remove ourselves from his grace just a few pages on in in Romans chapter 11 Paul tells us what the consequences are for not continuing in the faith Paul is talking about Israel's unfaithfulness. Out of the multitude of who God rescued out of Egypt, can anyone tell me how many of them actually got to the promised land? Two. Two. Some of you might even know their names. Caleb and Joshua. And when Jesus Christ came, Israel hardened their hearts against him. And Paul uses the image of branches being broken off of the olive tree 
to show how much of Israel have been cut off from salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about how we Gentile Christians, right, non-Jewish Christians, that's most of us here, are grafted into this olive tree. And how this is an expression of God's grace for us, that we get grafted into God's olive tree. But then he goes on to give us a warning. Romans 11, verse 21 to 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning Israel, neither will he spare you, meaning Gentile Christians. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, the unbelieving Jews, but God's kindness to you, Christians, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. If we don't continue in God's kindness, if we don't continue in faith and in obedience, we too will be cut off. Right, now I think we've spent enough time on predestination and theology, um, because we don't have a lot of time. Um, Let's turn now to the scriptures themselves. What does the Bible say on this? Now, as I prepared for today, one preacher who I had a bit of a listen to said that there were 80 New Testament references warning that we can lose our salvation. And we're going to turn to those 80... No, we're not. We're not going to go through 80 of them. Um, Now, I I believe what he says is true. I didn't hunt down all 80 of them. But to me, as I read the New Testament, it seems to come up pretty often. So let's just have a look at a few of them. In Romans chapter 11, it was saying that we're only saved when we are in Christ. Uh, If I am cut off from Christ, my salvation is gone, right? Our salvation isn't in ourselves. Our salvation is in Christ. And there's a similar theme in John chapter 15, a well-known Bible reading where Jesus talks about the vine. You might even be able to quote it with me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me. Now, you know what that word abide means? It means whoever remains in me, uh, whoever stays in me, whoever perseveres in me. And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Right. So up until now, he's talking about bearing fruit. The only way we can be fruitful for God is not doing stuff in our own strength. It's being connected into God, being connected into the vine, drawing our strength from him. But now here comes a warning in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. How much security is that offering somebody who's not persevering in Christ? If somebody doesn't persevere in their faith in Jesus Christ, you think that this is indicating that they're still secure. How can this be anything other than an image of judgment? While we're in John, we'll go to the best-known verse in in the whole Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, in the Greek, the word there for believes is once again in the present tense. 
So he's saying, whoever is believing in me will not perish but have eternal life. So what does that say about those who are not believing? In Jude, we are told that God is able to keep us, but we're also told to keep ourselves in the love of God. In the parable of the sower, Jesus tells us about those who believe and endure for a little while, but then they fall away. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about the Christian life in terms of running a race. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, what does it mean to be disqualified? It means you're out of the race. Um, It means you've got no chance of attaining the prize. What's the prize? Eternal life. Colossians 1.23 gives us a promise about our worthiness before God. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. In Hebrews 9, it tells us that the second coming of Jesus is not to deal with sin, but to save people. Who is it to save? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. Doesn't say anything about those who once believed in him and now don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, there's two common ways that the once saved, always saved people will usually explain all of these verses. The first is to say, the Bible isn't warning us about losing our salvation, it's warning us about the possibility of losing our reward. And the second explanation that gets used is that the Bible is talking about people who were never saved in the first place. They might have thought they were saved, but they weren't. And, and that all seems to be a, a neat way of wrapping it up, but it doesn't answer all the Bible readings. How about this one? James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Right? So he's addressing them as brothers. That means they're Christians. Um, And he says, If anyone among you, right, so if any one of you, my brothers, if any one of you who are Christians wanders from the truth, right, so if this is a Christian who's going astray in their faith, so we can't say they never believed in the first place, and if you bring this person back to faith again, you save his soul from death. He's not talking about some kind of heavenly reward here, an extra crown or whatever. He's talking about Saving someone's soul from death. Meaning, if someone wanders from the faith and they're not brought back, they don't get eternal life. They're damned to death. And likewise, how about this one? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world 
by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on it. Now this is very clearly talking about someone who has become a Christian. They have escaped the corruption of the world. How? By knowing our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. All right? They are saved. They've, they've escaped it. But then they go back to the ways of the world. They turn their backs on Jesus. And then they're worse off than before they began. So this is clearly not talking about losing some kind of reward, how could you possibly be worse off than when you began if you're still saved? As I look at the scriptures, scriptures, I cannot see anything else other than them stacking up against the belief of once saved, always saved. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is so important. We, 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 it needs to be continuous and it needs to be nurtured. Okay, so if there's no such thing as this idea of once saved, always saved, so what? What does that mean for us? Well, I believe it affects us on two planes. The first is our own salvation. It is so, so very important that we keep on in the faith. And your story might be a little bit like the, the one that we began this message with. You may have at one stage have given your life to God and then you haven't really thought much about it since. Well, be warned. God's message for you today is endure. This is no light matter. Return to your first love. Get real with God again. This is so important. Your whole salvation, your whole eternity depends on you being in relationship with God today, not yesterday, today. Faith isn't like an insurance policy where you buy this insurance policy once and then you have it. Faith is something that we live day by day and we're being saved day by day right through until when Jesus Christ returns. The second plane that it affects us on is how we relate to others. What measure do we put in to encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to persevere? And how diligent are we in chasing up those who once used to worship but now they seem to have fallen away. Now, this isn't just the job of the minister. And we don't just chase people up so that we can maintain numbers in a church. If we truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll be concerned for them. Due to a medical emergency, the message was cut short at this point. Um, but I just want to, I think I'll just finish off by saying now, I was talking about the, the second plane that this affects us on is how we relate to others. What, what measure do we put into encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to persevere? And it's really important that we be doing that. Um, if we truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll be really concerned for them. And, 
and we will want to make sure that their salvation is not at risk. See, this is a journey that we're all on together. And at some time or other, we all need encouragement. And if you're concerned about the eternal well-being of your brother or sister in Christ, then it's an absolute necessity for you to become involved in their journey and for you to watch out for them and for you to encourage them to, to be strong in the faith. God is so good. He doesn't want any of his children to be lost. Jesus Christ prays for each of us. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And God does this so that we will be sure of him and, and so that we'll know his presence and so that we'll just want to be with him. But ultimately, we either choose to be faithful or unfaithful. And we're going to continue to see this as we continue studying this book of Revelation. And that's why it can. It encourages us over and over again to continue on in the faith, to continue believing in Jesus. And that's what we should be doing for each other, encouraging one another. God bless. Amen.